Welcome everyone. Thank you. Good evening. Good morning. Good afternoon. I have no idea what time you're listening to this, but I'm joined today by both a friend and a colleague, and I'm really excited to have him here. His name is Joseph Stern. I call him Jody. Um, by way of background, he is a fellow neurosurgeon. He's also a friend and a neighbor, and he's, in fact, he's operated on me. He's on speed dial for my wife. For those of you who may not know, um, I have a son with uh, significant special needs. He's got epilepsy as well as autism. And on occasion, the epilepsy causes him to fall. And if I'm out of town, the first call um, that comes out of my house doesn't go to me. It goes to Dr. Stern. So let me jump into his bio. He's a neurosurgeon and partner in the largest neurosurgical practice in the country. And we'll, we'll spend a little, little bit of time talking about that. He also has a very personal experience related to healthcare and the healthcare system, and it's put him on a different or actually a parallel uh, trajectory, and we'll spend a fair amount of time digging into that. He's an author, having published uh, in multiple locations, including uh, the New York Times, and he's also an inventor. So with that, let me welcome Dr. Stern. Thanks for being here today. My pleasure, Jeff. All right, so um, I opened with the idea that you're a neurosurgeon, and there aren't many neurosurgeons. You're the first neurosurgeon that I've actually spoken with on the podcast, although although I know um, I know many. Just tell me how it is you became a neurosurgeon. Most people don't start off wanting to be a neurosurgeon. It's something that we meander into. But tell me about your trajectory. I started in, I went to University of Michigan Medical School and um, I rotated through surgery late in my training and I didn't, my anticipation was that I wouldn't really like surgery. I thought it was going to be brutal and not very humane and not very interesting and I went actually to medical school thinking I wanted to either be a pediatrician or a psychiatrist. And believe it or not, I was blown away by orthopedic surgery, which is about as extremely far away from uh, those other areas as you could be. Um, and actually started in orthopedics. And then I was sitting in a uh, in the lecture hall with a fellow resident. So we were both interns and he was, uh, his name's Alan Gross. He's right now running for US Senate for the state of Alaska. <laughs> but, but so he's had an interesting course, but um, he and I were sitting and talking. And he said, well, I wanna go back to Alaska and I really can't do it as a neurosurgeon. I'd rather be an orthopedic surgeon. And I said, well, I really think the brain is fascinating. and I'd be interested in being a neurosurgeon, and we switched residencies. Well, 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 hang on. Was the implication that there were no brains in Alaska, or am I missing something right here? Too much call. Oh, too, too much call. I too much it. call, too much, um, too many subdurals at night, no control over your uh, lifestyle. Well, that is true. Trauma is a nocturnal illness, mm -hmm. uh, something we'll dive into in just a, a little bit. So you switched residencies with him, and I assume that you just walked up to the chairman and said that you each had a different request or how did that play out? I can't imagine doing that little, in our program. Yeah, it was a little unusual. And I kind of hesitated because I was adding um, adding time. So it was going to be a longer training program. And so I, my wife was, are you crazy? Why are you doing that? And uh, I remember one of the orthopedic attendings um, said to me as I, as I, as I made that announced that I was going to make that switch. She looked at me and said, well, at least you're not becoming a flea. And that was the end of it. <laughs> wow. So one of the things that I find interesting, every specialty seems to have its own personality mix. Um, 
I think the thinking behind surgery in general is that type A detail oriented, um, maybe not as good in terms of communication with patients, um, maybe gruff, and neurosurgery may be an elevated component of that. Um, certainly there are exceptions to that rule. There are certainly uh, those who are fabulous communicators and certainly those who spend a lot of time uh, wanting to connect and talk to uh, patients and, and keep them as their as patients for life. What do you think? Um, what do you think the personality paradigm is in neurosurgery? First question, and then number two, do you think that the field attracts a particular personality type, or do you think the field makes a particular personality type? None of the above, or both? Um, so I think that's a very interesting question. First of all, I was um, very fortunate to have trained at University of Michigan, where Dr. Buzz Hoff was the chairman, and he was a, a mensch. He was a really kind man. He was a great teacher. Uh, residents loved him. It was a very humane program. Uh, so I've heard stories of abusive and difficult, uh, stressful programs. Fortunately, while it was a lot of work, my training program was not that way. It was actually very humane and uh, very humanistic. And actually, one of the reasons I made the switch from orthopedics to uh, neurosurgery was I found a lot of the orthopedists were constantly focusing on the joint and not the person. And I wanted to be more involved with the entire person. So I felt that that was available to me through the training in neurosurgery. And really, um, many of the people that I, my co-residents were fascinating people, interested in, in lots of things, you know, listened to music, played, played in orchestras. Um, uh, one of my co-residents is Sanjay Gupta, who is now mm -hmm. on CNN. Uh, and so very uh, worldly and interested people. And so I felt uh, it was a good fit in terms of uh, people who are interested in the world around them. You know, I can definitely validate Buzz Hoff. The name is, first of all, is very interesting. If you say it quickly, it sounds like Buzz Hoff. But um, I spent a summer up in Michigan as a student. I was a third-year student in neurosurgery going through, and I, I can certainly corroborate exactly what you said, namely he is a mensch. And I've, our chairman, Bob Grossman, same way, mm -hmm. a, a very much uh, great guy, mensch, very interested in the patient. So maybe maybe the actual um, uh, the bum rap that many neurosurgeons get isn't well deserved or we just ended up in great programs. I think we ended up in great programs. I also think that there's a big variety of personalities that are drawn to neurosurgery. You and I both know neurosurgeons who are on the further end uh, from that, who are very technical, not very hum humane, not very interested in people. And so it tends to attract a variety of personality types. You know, it's interesting. One of the people that I trained with, technically adept, in fact, a surgeon surgeon, I mean, he was a master to look at, but he really, and, and he was interested in patients, but he wasn't a talker and really didn't want to spend a lot of time speaking with each individual patient unless they were particularly interesting. And I still remember one of his comments <laughs> Um, which was, look, if you want a friend, get a dog. If you want a great surgeon, I'm your guy. And, and the truth is, is that that probably was who he was. That was his personality. And maybe the better thing for him to do would be to hire an assistant, a PA, et cetera, who could be that communicator, the person that could translate for the patient. And so everybody would be on the same page. 
think with the world of extenders, that's probably a, a that is a way that that could really help. Um, I think back when I was training, that really didn't exist. What, one of my uh, Dr. Hoff one said to me one time of a very famous neurosurgeon, he said, I'd let him operate on my brain, but I'd never have him over for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the best neurosurgeons are ones you would let operate on your brain and have them over for dinner. I think, I think so. But I have this as a, a running debate with one of my partners who says, well, you know, why are you trying to inject humanity into the field of neurosurgery? It's really all about technical proficiency and, and expertise and, and being the best surgeon. And actually, as I've gone through my career, I feel that's less and less the case. You know, when I started, it was all about perfection. And it was the ideal was that you had to do absolutely everything flawlessly and that it was a technical exercise. And I realized through my own personal experience that we're actually leaving a lot of the important drivers of the relationship with a neurosurgeon and a patient out of that equation, which is the relationship with the patient, understanding what the patient needs. And what I've come to realize is that patients very often they want to be accepted and appreciated and acknowledged as human beings. And usually it's the neurosurgeon who is really focused on perfection. That's really not the, the, the patient is actually the patient, patient's family. They want connection. They want um, communication. They want respect. They want acknowledgement. And they're really not fixated on perfection. But for a lot of the other problem with that whole standard is it's an unrealizable standard. It's not possible to do anything perfectly. You know, I've never done a surgery, even yours. I've never done a surgery that I regarded as perfect. It's not, a, it's not an attainable goal. And the reality is connecting with your patient and being there as a human being with them and through an illness, I think is far more important. I think that surgery is one part of it, but it's not the whole part. It's not I would agree. Package. So they're not mutually exclusive. The fact that your goal is to be technically adept, to be the best possible technician, is certainly a reasonable goal, but it shouldn't necessarily be at the expense of not connecting to the patient because when you are working on a patient, you have to understand what their goals are. So for example, let's say you have a patient with a brain tumor, okay? How you take care of that patient, well, you can't take care of that patient in a vacuum. That patient may have particular goals. What may the goal be? Well, it may be longevity, or it may be just making it to a graduation or a wedding. Those are two very different approaches, and those are different surg surgical approaches. Um, same, meaning that one patient that shows up in the door with a diagnosis may have two different ideas of what they would consider to be success. And how can you actually do your job unless you at least have a modicum of understanding what the patient believes would count as success? So one of the things I think is very challenging about being a neurosurgeon is that you need to flex a lot through a lot of emotional states. And what do you mean by that? So you need to be able to connect with a patient, have a powerful experience, um, you know, sometimes to sit and cry with a patient, they're about to die or you're telling someone terrible news and it, to wall it off and sort of um, make yourself uh, impermeable actually makes you inaccessible and it also makes you not communicate well. But then you go into the operating room and you have to have uh, daring and the sense of um, a, a willingness to take on risk, a willingness to block out some of the emotional uh, connection with that patient to the point that you can actually cut their head open and operate on them and dig deep inside someone's brain and remove uh, tumors. 
that requires some distance. So it's a really challenging job to be able to, to move between those emotional states. Part of it means definitely understanding the risk tolerance for every patient. Every patient is different. Someone who comes in that's 18 years old is going to have a particular risk profile. Someone who's 85 will have a different risk profile. None of that can be understood without at least having a conversation with the patient and potentially their family. I can't imagine, and I say this with the benefit of hindsight, I can't imagine one size fits all for every patient that walks in the door. I think if you had one size fits all for every type of patient that walked in, the majority of your patients would find that to be a rotten outcome. I think so. And I also think there's a tendency in the perfectionistic, technically oriented surgeon to look at, say, the patient is reduced to a tumor and you remove the tumor. And the reality is it's always a person with a problem that you're trying to help them with. And I think it's interesting because I, I think that there's a lot more longitudinal connection with patients than I first thought there would be. You know, I've, I have patients that I've seen for years and years that have had mul done multiple surgeries on them, particularly for the spine or also for brain tumors. And I'll see them uh, for many years. So you do have long-term relationships with patients. So let's make this personal. Um, the reason you're saying this, I think, is partly due to your personal experience. You've written eloquently about your sister and also about your sister's husband, your, your brother-in-law, both of whom uh, passed away um, at a young, I would argue, a young age. Um, certainly a surprise to have received these types of diagnoses early in life. And as close as you were with her, she lived on the other side of the country, saw each other sporadically, but then you received a phone call that something was up and that changed your life in many different ways. Well, let's, why don't you spend a few minutes talking about that and give it, give it background and color. So my younger sister's name was Victoria and she was uh, a force of nature. She was, I'm kind of um, maybe introverted a little bit nerdy and not used to sitting in front of a microphone and talking. My sister was an actress and she was uh, willing to go and put herself out, go for auditions, constantly be rejected, dust herself <laughs> off, go back and do it the next time. You know, as a surgeon, it's pretty easy. Once you get your medical degree and your training, you're good to go. You basically work and you have a lot of validation and a lot of uh, positive uh, feedback. You're not auditioning every day. Every day is not an audition. And yet uh, my sister, so my sister was married uh, to Pat. Uh, she had two young boys at age 52. So this was about four years ago, but age 52, she developed uh, what seemed like a flu-like illness that turned out to be leukemia. She had uh, AML or acute myelocytic uh, leukemia, which is a bad kind of leukemia, but there's a lot of ranges of that. And her particular mutation was what's called monosomy seven, which means that she lost uh, one copy of the seventh chromosome, which puts it in a really poor prognostic group. So the- Now, does that mean the range of treatment options contracts because of that mutation? Yes, and the success of those treatment options is pretty poor. Uh, so her five-year survival at the time of diagnosis was 6%. Now, did she know that number? Well, that was an interesting part of the whole discussion was that she did not want to know that number. And she wanted my support and my knowledge and my ability to wend, wend our way through the medical system. But at the same time, she didn't want to acknowledge that she might die. How, how did she tell you that? I mean, was she explicit about that? Yes, yeah, she said certain things we were just not talking about. And what about her husband then? You said she had two children, correct? Yeah, and they were uh, probably about 12 and 14 at the time. And uh, so the whole house went into a full 
court press denial state where they basically said, we're going to take all the treatments, do everything we possibly can, and we're going to get through this and we're going to get better. And uh, so they were all kind of bonded together. Uh, her son, Nick, ended up, she ended up having a bone marrow transplant. Her son, Nick, was actually the donor for that transplant. Uh, and when, so... Was Nick an adult or he a... He was 14. So he was, and, you know, he agreed to to donate. I just found it to be a very shocking experience what it suddenly felt like to go from being a doctor where I was in control and had a pretty good idea of what was involved with being sick to suddenly on the receiving end of medical care. And that was a real eye opener. I think that the compassion, how people treat patients matters a great deal. And I never really understood quite how important that was until I was on the receiving end. But it, specifically with regard to my sister's uh, willingness to admit that she might die, that was really difficult. And I think in the end that, that, that hurt a lot of people because she never was willing to accept that. She went through a bone marrow transplant Within six months of the transplant, she uh, had a declining platelet count, which was a signal that her leukemia was coming back. The doctor never really told her that she was that there really wasn't anything else to do, but they weren't going to retransplant her, and the the chemotherapy that they were using wasn't really effective. So they honestly didn't have any solutions. Uh, so she kind of continued in this. Uh, chemotherapy light state. And for, where was she? Was she at home or in the she hospital? Was, she was at, uh, she bouncing back between, she lived in Los Angeles. She was um, treated at a great place. I, I, I had a great deal of uh, respect and, and appreciation of them, a city of hope. Uh, she would go in and out of the hospital. She later went back in the hospital uh, with a an episode of sepsis. And then she had a cardiac arrest and died. Uh, and what was striking to me was that because she was not willing to admit that she might die, she never talked with her family that she very well could die. And she never said goodbye to her family. She never mm. said goodbye to her husband. She never said goodbye to her sons. And they were completely shocked when that happened. So in spite of what looked like to you a fairly rapid downhill course, she didn't make that transition for what might be obvious, which is, she is going to die, and it happened much quicker than she wanted or believed, and nobody got a chance even within a 24-hour period to say goodbye. Well, yeah, so her the, the proximate cause of death was very quick. Um, this whole process lasted probably about a year. So it took, it took a long time with her treatment. And so, uh, you know, getting uh, pre uh uh, transplant chemotherapy and then having the uh, transplant and then recovering after the transplant. She was in the hospital for about 100 days right after the right after the transplant. So do you think the team that was taking care of her um, was viewing this more as a technical exercise against the demon cancer? Um, although your sister basically had a clear goal in mind. The goal was longevity. I mean, that is what she made she, clear. Absolutely. She was resolute that she was going to live. She wrote a journal about her illness. She said that she was going to do a one-woman show on Broadway about what it's like to survive leukemia. And I have subsequently written a book about her experience and, and my transformation and also using incorporating her journal because it's a very uh, telling uh, course of what, of what it was like to be sick. Okay, so hang on to that thought for a minute sure. because in the book, you've also written about your brother-in-law. So your brother-in-law was was one of the survivors 
um, after your sister passed and um, they mourned, but that's not the end of the story right here. So part of their mourning was they, was they had this frenetic lifestyle where they were traveling all over the place and, and he, he was, uh, uh, took the bull by the horns. He had, he was running five companies. He was an entrepreneur, a venture capitalist, uh, and he, they, they traveled a lot. They did a lot. Um, about a year after her death, he was exercising with his son, again, Nick, the, the one who did, uh, was the donor for the bone marrow transplant. And he felt, uh, Pat felt funny, had a severe headache, went home. Initially, EMS came out and they said, well, you've been over-exercising in the heat, go home and rest, went home. And basically what had happened was he had a subarachnoid hemorrhage from a ruptured aneurysm in his brain. This is your field. This That's, is what you and know now, about. Now it's in my world. Uh, and, and unfortunately, one of the, the comorbidities, one of the issues he had was he had a uh, heart valve replacement for um, aortic valve disease. And so he was on Coumadin. So having a blood thinner and a ruptured aneurysm don't go well together. No, they don't. And so he was in, instantly in a coma and then was rushed to UCLA Medical Center. And I got a call one Saturday night saying, you know, uh, Pat's in the ICU with a, in a coma. It's like a surreal moment. Hopped on a plane Sunday morning and then spent a week out there. Came back for a few days to do some of the surgeries that I had canceled, then went back for another week and we decided to withdraw treatment. But it was very interesting to be on the receiving end of that. To I was the health his healthcare power of attorney. I was in charge of making all his medical decisions. I also had to talk to his sons. And this time around, we actually were very direct. I said, I really don't think he's getting better. I'm not sure he's going to survive or recover. And we talked about what his dad would want. And so one of the things I learned was that the tendency to pull away from the emotional connection or the emotional contact, the, the having the hard conversation, all physicians generally feel very uncomfortable doing those kinds of things, but you need to do them. And when I did that with uh, his sons, it was actually really helpful for them. They, they cried. It was very painful to go through. But in the end, they said they felt better being able to help make those decisions and have an impact on, on what was happening and knowing that they had some control. Because I think they felt very upset about what had happened to my sister and they didn't understand why it had happened when they were continually reassured that she was going to get better and, wish, and that she was going to make it. I mean, I don't think any doctor wants to have an uncomfortable conversation with a patient. You want them always to get better. Why wouldn't you not want them to get better? But it comes with the territory. Um, if someone, if, a, if a, um, a patient is 18 years old and puts their head through a windshield and the prognosis is horrible, that's a conversation that you have to have with the mom and dad. You can't delegate that. I do know there are people that delegate that. But as Maya Angelou once said, people may forget what you say, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Mm. And even when it's a horrible situation, sitting down with them, sometimes crying with them. I mean, if you're if you're a father, you can only imagine how painful it must be to the family going through it. I can't imagine not having a strong emotional reaction to that. But we're not really trained to do it. Right. We we have mentors and we can watch how they do it. But by and large, many of us um, are traveling blindly on a path um, without 
we trial and error. We figure, we see what works. Uh, we see what doesn't work. We do more of what works. We do less of what doesn't work. But I don't think it ever it ever feels easy. It never feels easy. So one of the things that I think is important is the burgeoning field of palliative care. And I think that there needs to be a lot more palliative care in the field of neurosurgery. Because when, when so when I go through the experience with Pat, the first uh, day that I was there, I was standing in the waiting room in UCLA and I said to his brother and sister-in-law, oh, here comes the neurosurgeon, because I could see by the way he was walking across the hall that that was the neurosurgeon. And I went up to him and I said, uh, Dr. Lekovic, um, are you the neurosurgeon? He was sort of taken aback. And then we started talking. <laughs> he said, yes, I am. And I said, uh, we're, we're, he was taken aback, but I talked about with him about Pat. And I said, well, you know, you clipped the aneurysm, but we both know that doesn't really solve his problem. That just prevents it from bleeding again. And he sort of looked at me like, who are you? And I said, he didn't know you're a neurosurgeon. No. And I said, okay. I'm a neurosurgeon too. And then we had a, that broke the ice. And then we were able to have a very detailed and I think a very compassionate conversation where he said, don't let them put in a feeding tube. Don't let them do a tracheostomy. He kind of said, cause I said, you know, we're going to, I think we should give him a, a period of time to see if he gets better, but if he doesn't, this is not the life he would want to live. And I saw from just knowing Pat to all of a sudden Pat's a head on a bed in an ICU with a, a ventricular drain, you know, shaven head, scar on his head, wrapped, wrapped forehead in a coma. And you start to see how his humanity has been removed and nobody knows who he is or, or anything about him. All of the medical treatment team is looking at him as a sort of technical exercise. You know, how much of his, is his drain putting out? Uh, what is his level of consciousness? And I knew from talking to Pat and largely about in the process of dealing with my sister's death, he was very explicit. I don't want to live in a nursing home. I don't want to be in a ventilator. I don't want to uh, not be participating in my life. And I knew how vital his life was. So the disconnect between his life the day before he went up in the ICU and then from there on out was very telling. But I think a lot of times families are extremely uncomfortable. They don't feel they're out of their element. They don't feel that they have enough power or a voice to be able to say what they want. And I found what was happening there was it was all out about uh, throughput and efficiency and length of stay and moving sort of a procedurally driven healthcare uh, where we're going to, you know, clip his aneurysm, maybe put in a shunt, maybe put in a, uh, a tracheostomy and a feeding tube, and then off to a nursing home, he would go. And I said, no, that's not what he wants. And that's not what we're going to do. So I kind of had to draw a line. Well, it sounds like you drew a balance, meaning that you you agree to give it just the briefest amount of time to see whether there was improvement. We, You and I both have a friend who had a pretty sizable intracranial hemorrhage and looked really bad initially. And the family wasn't sure precisely what they wanted to do, but then it seemed like they didn't want aggressive therapy. But I think your comment, which I echoed, which was, well, let's give it a day or two days. Let's see if he shows signs of improvement. Well, um, and we gave we gave um, Pat a week in, right. in the, on the ventilator. So I was not suggesting that we make immediate decisions to withdraw. And that is part of the art, I but, think. But it's giving him enough time to see if he recovers without so de not, not denying him the option or the opportunity to recover, but also not boxing him into a foregone exactly. conclusion that once you put in a feeding tube, well, then it's very difficult to withdraw treatment. And 
Sometimes I feel that the economic forces that drive care about moving patients along and getting them out of the hospital, they have sort of sucked the humanity of, of what's really going on out. And the other thing I was mentioning about palliative care, the, the disconnect was palliative care was great there, but we only got to talk to palliative care after we had made all the hard decisions. We'd said, you know, we're going to stop, we're going to uh, let him go. And then we talked to palliative care and it was basically like funeral planning, where the reality was we needed those people involved all along and we needed neurosurgeons and the neurointensivists to be much more focused on that perspective while they're making decisions in rendering care. And that is the default assumption is that palliative care is only there when everything else is done. It's, they're not part of the decision making process to bounce ideas off of. I know one of the things that families are concerned about, they wanna make sure that they have reasonably exhausted reasonable options and not jump the gun. And there's always an art associated with that. I do know that, so my wife and I have the exact same healthcare directive. It, it has checked every same box, yet she's concerned I'm going to pull the plug a little too quickly. I'm concerned she's going to let me linger a little bit past my shelf life, even though every box is the same. So I think that the challenge is finding the balance to understand uh, how to get patients, family, uh, the families comfortable with the fact that um, a reasonable amount of things have been done and they don't have to feel guilty about any decisions that are made. So I have, uh, so my dad came to visit uh, recently uh, for Thanksgiving and he's 91 so he drove himself and he drove home and he's very fit and i was sitting there but he lives alone and i was sitting there and he said he wants to stay in his house and i said well have you talked to your doctor about advanced directives and he said no and i said he said every time i go to the doctor i get my annual checkup and he tells me i'm in great shape and everything's perfect and i said well dad you know how this ends right you're not going to live forever and you're already 91 wait 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 you're telling me that death is autosomal dominant with complete penetrance it is okay genetic lesson 101 <laughs> yeah so it's like we play, we play a game where we don't want to talk about dying we don't want to talk about death and everyone's uncomfortable so they tend to finesse or avoid the discussion and, and when when better time than talk about it when everybody's healthy <laughs> exactly that's what i said to him i said go to your doctor take your healthcare power of attorney. I said, make sure that it's taped to your refrigerator. And he'd never heard about that. But if you, you know, if, if EMS comes for you and you're incapacitated, they go and look on your freezer, on your fridge to get the uh, healthcare power of attorney. And I said, you know, we're out of town. It's going to be at least 24 hours before we're there at your bedside. And a lot can happen within 24 hours. And one of the things, one of the articles I had in the New York Times was about the decision to operate on patients with subdural hematomas who come in, in the middle of the night uh, to the emergency room and they can't talk and I don't know them and I don't know all their history. And so we often have to make very difficult decisions about whether to pursue treatment, whether to do surgery or not. And I think it's a very difficult position to be in. For example, if you know that there's a one in 10 chance that the person's gonna get better, should you take them to surgery or not? You know, these are these are difficult decisions. And I think a lot of times the doctors are in a vacuum because there hasn't been a lot of forethought or discussion of these things among family members before anything like this happens. And I'm sure you've seen this where um, grandma falls down and um, has a subdural hematoma or maybe an intracerebral hematoma. She lives in a community with two of her children 
and they under they know grandma really well and then there's yet one other child who lives on the other coast who hasn't seen um this woman in about a decade flies in and says you must do everything or everyone else says no 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 i know exactly what she would have wanted which is just comfort care only without without the advanced directive from the woman you really you would prefer a consensus and you would prefer not to have to act in an information vacuum i'm i'm, I'm sure you've seen this, this happens all the time and another thing that happens is when people are have are less affluent i mean i think a lot of times more affluent people are much quicker to say enough you know we've had so and so has had a good life and this and uh this is not what they would want and we're not going to do this and a lot of times people say well uh, my loved one didn't get this as uh, didn't get his, what was his due in his life. And so now in the ICU, we're doing everything. And what they don't realize is it's like the final insult, you know, because a lot of these treatments uh, are cause pain and don't necessarily get you to a place where you would want to be. I mean, there's a lot of times I'll talk to families and say, if we do all these things, this is really not going to get your loved one to a place that I think they would be happy, but of course I don't know them. So it becomes a discussion. I can only relate my own experiences and be available and try to discuss it with them. But I think there's sometimes there's a, a very uh, unusual amount of expectation that things will be so much better or that you can quickly solve problems that are frequently not solvable. Well, many families have either never been in or seen an intensive care unit. So they don't know what's going on to them. It's a abstract entity and there was an interesting study i think it was done by a harvard oncologist he had patients who were end-stage pancreatic cancer exhausted all options um, certainly most of them had less than six months to live and wanted to get an advanced directive from them and a fair number of them even knowing their prognosis um, when i say a fair number i'm talking about 40 50 percent said i want everything done I want heroic measures done. And, um, but no one really understood, and you'll see what I mean in just a minute, they didn't understand what it means to intubate, it does, they didn't understand what it means to do cardiac compressions, they've never spent any time in intensive care unit. So then he shows them a video mm. of a day in the life of a patient in intensive care unit. It shows what it's like to be on a ventilator, to be intubated, to get chest compressions where you know your ribs are cracked and so on and so forth. And then they asked the same question. Now, what say you? It turned right. out, you know, it's in single digits. It's um, less than 10% that said do everything because now they had a better understanding of what do everything meant. It meant that the prognosis likely would be unchanged, but the path to getting to that unchanged outcome was going to be painful and horrific. So part of it's, you know, educating the patient, you know, what this means. What does it mean to do everything? Well, we have an extraordinary health system where we have great resources, great technology. We can do wonderful things to people and we can save lives, but we can also hurt people. And you need to have a balanced perspective when to do these things and when to say this is not in the person's best interest. Um, so speaking of our healthcare system, you've spent time overseas. Well, not overseas, but down south. You went to Honduras on a medical mission. You've been there twice, if I remember That's correctly. Right. That's right. So um, tell us a little bit about that. What motivated you to go down to Honduras, what you saw when you got down there, how you organized it or how it was organized, what you did and what you observed. So I am working with an organization called One World Surgery. And One World Surgery is 
based on the belief that there are 5 billion people in the world who have no access to surgical care and that that's not just and that people deserve to have access to, to surgical care. So the whole notion of an advanced directive would almost be absurd down in Honduras, correct? You're wasting your paper <laughs> okay. and ink. You're there, a papel. Because <laughs> there is no, okay. uh, there is no, uh, I think, I don't know the exact figure, but I believe that the per capita expenditure in Honduras for healthcare is about $69 per, per year and about $7,000 per year in the US. <laughs> okay. So we spend a lot more money on healthcare. But patients are not, uh, don't have access to care. And what you see are really tragic situations. Uh, a man who was shot in the leg or broke his tibia had to take a 24-hour uh, journey from basically a jungle to even get to a hospital. They'll say, you need to pay in advance for your surgical implants or we won't do your surgery. And if they have no money, they don't get any surgery. So these are problems that we would consider to be trivial and solvable in our system, correct? And, you know, we talk about healthcare, whether it's a right or a privilege, but the truth is if you show up in the, any emergency room in the U.S. with a broken femur or broken tibia, you're going to get treatment. You're going to have right. surgery. In Honduras, you're not going to have surgery and you become disabled. They have no social safety net to take care of people. And so a lot of times, you, if you have no family, you become indigent and unable to care for yourself. And people, so having a broken femur is oftentimes the difference between living or dying. Uh, also, it's amazing that in the world over, there are 2.9 million femur fractures per year compared to 1.7 million people with HIV. So trauma is untreated and unappreciated. It actually turns out in, in a, a surgical center where I go and do spinal surgery um, in outside of Tegucigalpa, it's about an, an hour outside of Tegucigalpa, there are very few options for patients. They will come and they'll wait eight hours on a porch to be seen. Everyone is extraordinarily grateful. The average time toward uh, from having the condition to getting treatment for these patients who actually do get surgery is about five years. So these people are basically disabled, unable to function and have no access to medical care. So you going down there, I mean, this is the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's only so much you and your colleagues can do in a medical missionary setting. In a perfect world, you would ultimately have a clinic that would be self-sustaining, run year-round with the type of specialty care that you can provide. And so that's what's really great about this place is there's a, a wonderful guy, you name, his name is Merlin Antunes, and he is the on-site medical director. He's an orthopedic surgeon. This place is in an orphanage or a home for uh, children, some, some of whom are orphaned and some of whom have uh, basically no, uh, the family lacked the economic resources to take care of the kids. Um, but basically, he grew up in this uh, home, uh, NPH home, and then went to medical school, became an orthopedic surgeon, and then came back and now runs it. So he's there year-round. And then there are 26 missions that go, basically week-long missions that will mm. go for uh, a week at a time. Uh, and they, last year, did 1,300 surgeries and saw 8,000 consults. When we were down there, we did spinal surgery, four doctors. We did 26 surgeries, uh, did 47 injections and 185 consults. And it's a, it's actually, it's an amazing experience. It's inspiring because you see how much people need care and how grateful they are for it. I have a- How did you get involved in it? What, what motivated you to connect? How'd you find it? How'd they find you? So there's a vendor, a spinal in implant vendor named Nuvasive whose products I use, and they have a, a Nuvasa Spine Foundation, which is a charitable arm of that company. 
and I they told me about this and I said I, I really wanted to go. Then I went down there and I've now I'm, I'm on the physician leadership council for One World Surgery for spinal surgery. They're in the process of building a, a similar hospital in uh, Dominican Republic and trying to export this model where so it's not uh occasional mission based mm -hmm. uh visits and then you know you go down there you feel good you do something and then you leave and there's no care and and things revert to what they were basically building hospitals that are self-sustaining that have the input and uh cooperation of u.s and international volunteers but then also our year-round uh facilities so it's I mean, a pretty good like mix it would be fascinating um to have a collection or steady stream of volunteers coming from the U.S. providing state-of-the-art care down there 365 days a year. Is that is that the model they hope to do? Or uh, no, I think they that they, they expand. They have three operating rooms and they have overnight stay. Um, they look at their outcomes measures and compare them to ASC measures in the U.S. and they're just as good. Less than 1% infection rate, greater than 9 out of 10 for patient satisfaction. Uh, occurrences that are like 0.02%. So very, they're very good at data collection and looking at the results, but they don't have the capacity to do you know, full-on missions every every week. Um, so it works where they have those missions come. There's also a lot of education of local uh, mm -hmm. uh, practitioners, um, CRNAs, nurse uh, technicians, and nurses. So there's a lot that's going on there. Also training uh, local physicians. And then they still run a medical clinic uh, year round. They also have dental clinic, ophthalmology. It's, it's been an extraordinary experience. And do they set the cases up for you so that you show up and you've got a um, collection of people that are candidates for the type of work that you so do? So when we first started, so spine is the late, late to the party because outpatient spinal surgery is a relatively uncommon thing. And in the developing or less uh, lower income world, it's, it's very uncommon. I don't, I don't think it really exists anywhere else. So one of the things we did was we went and initially it started. So it's only been going for two years. The whole organization has been going for probably 10 years. But spine has been we've been doing spine for about two years. But initially we did two missions a year. And then a lot of us said that's really not enough. You know, if you're coming down and, and you see someone and then they have to wait six months for care, that's not going to work. So now we're going four times a year. So we and we can do injections to tide people over and we come back, you know, every three months and do surgery. So one of the things you'll do is you'll see patients in the clinic and tee them up for the next brigade who will then come down and do the surgery. So they will do surgeries on the ones that have been set up from the previous brigade and then set up the next one. So that's how it's been working. If someone wanted to get involved with medical missionary work or something similar to this, how would they learn more about it? Let's assume that they're not a neurosurgeon or a spinal surgeon, they're ophthalmologist, ENT. What are the first steps that they would so, take? So I would, I, would look at, I would look at this organization. Um, it's called oneworldsurgery.org, and you can just go look on their website. Um, they have uh, orthopedic, general surgery, ENT, ophthalmology, urology, gynecology, uh, and uh, spinal surgery. Pretty significant array of uh, it's of talent. great, and, and the other thing is that is so inspiring is that when you go and you're not worried, I don't worry about an electronic medical record. It's a one-page <laughs> um, sheet or lawsuits. Yeah, I'm sure. and uh, and uh, when people, what you start to see is when people they go into the attitude of 
can do rather than can't do. They go in and say, here's what we can do. Here's how we make things work. Here's how we will, we, we're more, uh, we MacGyver our way out of situations <laughs> instead of saying, Hey, you know, well, you can't do it or it doesn't meet the protocol. There's when you come back and you, you start hitting these roadblocks, they're, they're kind of um, mind numbing and very frustrating because there's so much goodwill and a desire to get things done that we make it happen. But how would you, how would you deal with a complication there? You're only there for a week I guess you just figure it out. Is that the? So he the figured thing? out, but also they, the the uh, Dr. Peter Daly is the person who's created this, and he has a good relationship. Merlin and he both have good relationship with the academic hospital, and they see patients for each other. So I think there's availability of help if they need it. And you do do not speak Spanish. I don't, but the thing is, uh, I'm wondering. Does it to matter? Learn. Well, but they have they have. Um, translators all through the clinic and in the operating room, and it's actually not an impediment at all. All right, let's come back to the United States. Okay. Um, when I first met you, you were in a six or seven man neurosurgery group? Correct. Um, now you're part of the largest neurosurgical practice in the country. 44 doctors. So speak briefly about the management of those egos. No, I'm kidding. Mm -hmm. Speak briefly about what it's like to be part of a large organization like that, what you like better about it, what you think may not work as well as a three or four uh, person practice, and is this part of the future of American healthcare? I think it is. I mean, if you look at all health systems seem to be getting bigger. They want economies of scale. They want negotiating power. And I think that our group needed that as well. You look at all of the back office expenses from electronic medical records to uh, dealing with insurance denials and all of the uh, review. Um, uh, it's, it's an extraordinary amount of work. And it was very time consuming when we didn't have professional management and the doctors would sort of jump in and start to do that. And I think it's becoming pretty prohibitive. So we now have professional management and they put a lot of energy and they do a good job with that. Uh, I think it's better for contract negotiation and I think it's uh, it allows me to be a neurosurgeon and do what I do and not have to worry about the day-to-day -day management. Some of the things, the flip side of that is sometimes it's frustrating because it's bureaucratic and you can't get things done so there's a price you pay, but I think I'm I'm glad I'm in that situation. For many organizations that have grown by accretion or merger, they were smaller entities that came together to become one giant entity. Um, many of them get the economies of scale for things like you're talking about, back office, contracting, et cetera, but they allow the individual pods to remain reasonably autonomous. So you're in a community, Greensboro, which is separate from the mothership, which is in Charlotte. Correct. Do you run somewhat autonomously, except um, for the larger back office type of items, or is everything coordinated? No, through? I think I think it's pretty it's pretty individualized, and I think that works. I don't think that we've had um, to change drastically our culture, and I think we've been allowed to continue what we're doing. It's actually interesting. There's a there's a neat um, story that one of my partners in um, Charlotte, Scott Waite, is a, a pediatric neurosurgeon. And when I was in Honduras, um, I saw a young woman, a young girl who had a a pseudo a, spi a, 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 a myelomeningocele, so mm -hmm. basically a spinal um, neural tube defect that had never been operated mm -hmm. on. And she was, and the guy who ran NPH said, would I look at her? And she came to the clinic and I said, well, she really needs to be treated. She needs surgery or 
she's going to lose function. She was what's called a community ambulator. She was able to get around. She'd already done a ton of physical therapy. But I said, I can't do this. First of all, I can't do this in, in Honduras. And second of all, I don't really, you know, I did pediatric neurosurgery 25 years ago. I'm not the guy to do that. So the, um, the guy who runs the place, Reinhard Kohler, is very nice man. He said, well, find someone who will do it. And so I actually found, um, I contacted my partner, Scott, in Charlotte. And then we, we together worked on um, Levine Children's Center, uh, Children's Hospital, and they agreed to basically allow this girl to come to waive her fee to provide all the surgery. My partner's going to provide the surgery, uh, and uh, she's coming in just a couple weeks. And so I looked at that and said, well, that's clearly something where uh, I didn't have that capacity before, and in a bigger group, I have a lot more options. Yeah, and in that same vein, um, I have a friend who has a daughter with a healthcare condition, had a, um, a benign brain tumor, but something that needed attention. And the child was single digits, I think, eight or nine years old. And um, she wasn't getting much love from the local academic centers in terms of um, paying attention to her quickly. And you turned me on to the same uh, pediatric neurosurgeon, got her <laughs> immediately. And by the way, had surgery the day before Thanksgiving and everything worked it's worked great. out quite well. She's, she's at home. So very, very happy ending there. So it's a good it's a good group. It has uh, good standards, good ethics, good results. We have outcome measures on everything we do. And so I'm I'm proud to be affiliated with it. Let's um, migrate to um, you're an early adopter for a program we put together called Emerit, which was a mechanism to capture feedback from patients and get it uploaded to the dominant review sites of the Internet. Now this type of thing is standard or, or part of the status quo. But in 2011, um, nine years ago, it was unusual and um, it required being bold enough to ask your patients for feedback. Um, for many doctors, they didn't see the online world as being relevant. Um, if you were a talented uh, professional and you had a good local reputation, you would certainly have patients to see. If you're affable, available, and able, your people would constantly knock uh, on your door. But the world has changed somewhat with the online world. There's not a person around that doesn't purchase something uh, online without looking at the reviews first, even if you can't necessarily trust the reviews. Um, so we put together a platform and you were one of the early adopters and, and really hit it out of the park with that. And I know it, it affected your practice in a positive way because we've asked you to come back and speak about it a multiple times. So if you could just give the listeners just a one or two minute description of what this did for your practice, how easy it was to implement, what you saw take place and, you know, maybe what some of the shortcomings are, or why, why 100 percent of doctors don't embrace this. I think I was, it, it has worked out well, but it was not entirely intentional when I first did it. I think you and I have been friends for a long time and I was talking to you. I think I had received a scathing review from a patient and I, I didn't have many reviews on, uh, on me. And so basically someone who has an ax to grind can really sink your ship. And that really shocked me. And I also didn't think it was fair. I also don't think it's fair that if someone says something, which uh, I think this person was actually drug seeking and was really quite unpleasant. I don't think you would even operate on this patient. No, I, I, I was, I had an emergency. I had to do a brain surgery on a patient. I called and said that I would be two hours late because this was an emergency that just came in just before I had to come to the office. 
and the patient became irate and said, uh, you know, who, who how dare you? <laughs> how dare I make him wait? And I said, basically, you know, our, our relationship is over before it's even started, you know? Yeah. And then he wrote this really nasty review. Um, and so I think then you explained to me how you could uh, invite uh, patients to give their feedback. And I found it great. You know, we have a, an iPad basically at, at checkout. And I say, you know, would you like to say something about your care? And generally, uh, patients are very happy to do so. Um, so I found it, I found it wonderful. It has, you know, our practices are completely different than they used to be. The internet drives a lot of care decisions. I think, you know, someone may hear a name and then they'll go and look online for validation. You know, they may mm -hmm. have already set up a surgery and then they want to see, well, is this, what do, what do people think of this doctor? And um, my practice is, the limitation is my capacity to see patients. I have, I have patients who are coming, there's probably six to eight week or more wait list to come in. Uh, I have patients who are coming from West Virginia and from neighboring states. Yeah, you coming. have people from other time zones that you have yeah, seen. New uh, Mexico, I mean, it's, and it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And this is not the Mayo Clinic, you know. No. But you know the thing, well, first of all, outcomes from our spinal surgery, you know, we do, I, I do um, co-direct the brain tumor program um, locally, but the majority of what we do is spinal surgery. But um, our outcomes are extremely good, and our costs are actually pretty reasonable. So I think we, we are in a good position that way. Um, but patients, this sort of ties in with my whole uh, thing about empathy. And I think that as my own experience of uh, taking care or seeing what it's like to be a patient, uh, recognizing how absolutely terrifying it is to be a patient, how scary it is to have to have surgery, the trust factors that are involved in that has really made me much more aware of the importance of what I do. And so that combined with the review option, you know, basically all the review opportunity does is, is amplify responses that people are having a positive experience. But I've come to see, you know, I'm very different than I was 10 years ago. I used to think that um, I didn't understand compassion. I didn't understand the need for compassion. I, I felt uncomfortable speaking very emotionally with patients. I'm no longer that way. In fact, I, I really, I feel that doctors actually do themselves a disservice when they pull away from those difficult discussions or they don't go the place they're uncomfortable, so they choose not to go there, you know, or they or they substitute. Doctors are notorious for substituting. Well, I've got a million things to do, so I don't have time to do this. I don't have time. You know, it actually takes 17 seconds to establish empathy with a patient. It's all about whether you're willing to be vulnerable, whether you're willing to go there. And once you do start to go there and once you do start to go down this road of compassion, it, it is a... Um, it's kind of a positive feedback loop of, it's a positive experience. Don't you feel it would be professionally satisfying and perhaps the antidote to burnout? Well, I do. And I think that um, one of the things I have struggled with, and we talked about at the very beginning, was how do you, how do you, how are you available and invested in your patients and emotionally connected so that you can go between, you know, sitting by their bedside and actually crying with them and then at the same time, take them to surgery and, you know, how do you how do you move between those states? And so I think that one of the things that you have to become is what's called emotionally agile. So I realized in the process of my sister's illness that I had 
basically armored up. I had put on emotional armor for my entire training and my career. And it was all a failed effort to protect myself from the emotional experiences that I really didn't understand or knew how to deal with. And by becoming more emotionally agile, I put away the armor and I'm, I'm, I'm going to get, it's okay to get dirty and it's okay to, you know, it's okay to cry and it's okay to connect. I hug patients. Um, I really feel it, it helps me and it, I think it helps them. One of the things this, since this is a medical legal discussion, we, we would basically say that in the process of hugging a patient, just make sure there's always a witness. <laughs> It's a, it's a, it's a, it's not. I know it's a sad state of affairs that yeah. I have to bring that up. Well, and I, and I don't. But I do agree with you. I do think that um, during a patient's most vulnerable motion, uh, moment and their family's most vulnerable moment, they will remember how you made them feel. And there, there are times that there's really nothing you can do other than to listen and to let them know you are there and you will not abandon them. Yeah, and so some, some of these problems are not solvable. You know, and what people want is connection and that they care. And the, the thing that amazed me, you know, you talk about hugging, actually, I think before I started hugging my patients, um, a patient hugged me because I was, I just operated on him. And then he um, asked how my sister was. And I said that she had died and he stood up and gave me a big hug. Yeah. It's a very authentic moment, yeah. very real moment. Yeah. It's a type of thing that um, if, if someone had told you at the beginning of your career, you would have embraced that. It would have almost sounded laughable because of the types of training programs that we have. But with the benefit of hindsight, it seems inevitable. You know, one of the things I've done, I've, 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 I've gone on the road and I've started talking. And one of the things I did was I went and I talked to a nursing conference. And I think we're in a very strange state in medicine that, you know, we're all so intellectual and we, we talk so much about the technical exercise of what we do, but we don't talk about the emotional impact and we don't talk about the emotional decision-making. We don't talk about how to communicate with families. We don't talk about how to communicate with patients. We don't talk about grief, how we manage our own grief, how we move through these experiences rather than sort of bottling it up or, or uh, and then you look and you see the, the burnout rate I think is, is terrible. And I think a lot of it is because people don't know how to, how to, connect with their emotions. I think they, they try to run from those powerful experiences and, and it doesn't work. Well, how, how does one do it? Is it teachable? Is it coachable? Do you do it through books, videos? I mean, um, learn from mentors? So uh, I'll, I'll make a couple plugs. There's a wonderful book I read, um, which I would encourage people to read called Compassionomics, which makes the um, the case for greater compassion in healthcare. And I think that is a wonderful book. There's also an organization called the Schwartz Center. And some people will know this by Schwartz Rounds, but Schwartz Center is in Boston. And through my involvement with the Schwartz Center, I've met a woman named Helen Rice, who is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard, who runs a company called Empathetics. And basically what she does is she has shown through Mass General Hospital that you can actually train doctors to become more empathetic. And I think a lot of times, you know, doctors are very much quick studies. They're very smart. They're very engaged. They really do want what's best. There's, there's very little training in these areas. So if you teach people and you give them the skills, it enables them to connect more with their patients and also to connect with themselves. I mean, in a sense, it's a positive feedback loop. One of the things we learn with online reviews from patients is that if you're doing a good job, and patients are aware of it and the feedback comes to them, it's a virtuous um, loop, a virtuous cycle. Mm -hmm. 
and then the doctor or the team starts to up their game on their own. Similarly, I think if someone were to get the feedback from learning that what they're doing with empathy is working, they'll identify first that the patient gets a benefit, but it's also professionally satisfying. I think you would engage that same virtuous cycle there. So a couple of issues about compassion. One is that you can't, or empathy, you can't um, demand it. Uh, an external entity such as a health system cannot say, oh, now you need to be empathetic as well. You know, it would be just check, one more thing to do. Checking another box. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing is that is part of compassion, and I think this is uh, something that I think we don't do well, which is self-compassion. So in you talked earlier about the perfectionistic qualities of physicians or neurosurgeons, and you know when you're not a when you don't do a perfect job, um, we tend to be extremely sort of hypercritical mm -hmm. of ourselves and beat ourselves up. And that, if we're not kind to ourselves, we're not going to be kind to anybody else. So just by saying, you know, yes, I have high standards. Um, with a, you know, the idea of, well, if you're compassionate or you're self-compassionate, you know, people misinterpret that and says and say, well, that gives you a, a pass on doing a good job. No, it doesn't. You still have the high standard of doing an excellent job, but you have to be able to forgive yourself and you have to be able to recognize that you can't be perfect, that we aren't perfect, that none of these things will we achieve perfection. And that allows you enough space to be human. And if you're a human with yourself, you can be human with others. And I think a lot of times, the brittle, um, driving, perfectionistic nature of neurosurgeons is born out of a desire to do a perfect job, which is unachievable in the first place. But also, once you go down that road, you become very um, intolerant of failure, both in and of yourself, and also unwilling to go in a, to an in an emotional direction, which ends up being extraordinarily important to patients and families because that somehow violates your, your sense of self. And I think that's a big mistake. And if you practice long enough, you'll realize that it is impossible to do a perfect job. You will have complications. They are inevitable. I've yet to meet the surgeon who has never had a complication. If I meet that individual, either they just started work yesterday, B, they never looked, or C, they're a liar. Right. So right. I think we have to be honest with what we're capable of doing. Certainly strive for the best. I, have, I don't even call them best practices. I call them better practices. You just want to make them better and better over time, but you, you do need to forgive yourself. So the, so the other thing is that if you have a standard which says, I am always going to do my best and I'm always going to respect and value my patient, those are achievable goals. They're not absolute. If you go in with a standard of, I am going to do a perfect surgery, well, you're never going to achieve it. And if you extract the technical exercise from the person, I think it's kind of dangerous. I think that there it preys to our, our worst instincts. You know, I look and I say, you know, there's some there's some qualities in physicians I really don't like, you know, this kind of um, need for efficiency. Uh, you know, when, when we talk about surgeons as uh, machines, you know, they're not human, they're just production based. And you start to look at people as units of production or, you know, potential economic um, pay for you. And I think there's some very cynical kind of um, dead end qualities that or, or temptations that I think surgeons and other doctors can fall into, thinking that it will somehow validate them or give them the um, uh, satisfaction in their work. And I think in the end, they, they turn out to be, um, they don't work. 
You know, it's interesting. I had an epiphany um, many years ago. My son had uh, craniotomy for seizure surgery, and um, the nurse came out and said, I just want you to know everything is going okay. That was it. It was just a three or four minute interaction. Now, contrast that several years earlier when the nurse would ask me in the middle of the case, what do you want me to tell the family? Right. And my somewhat cynical answer was, well, if I'm shoulder deep in blood, what am I going to do? Ask them to come in there and help me. What I learned, what the epiphany was, is that all it all it says is that you know there's someone out there who loves them and right. is waiting for them right. and that it's not just the patient on the operating room table, you're thinking of the family. That's it. And I learned that by being on the other end. Right. And it's interesting. I think once you're on the other end, if you live long enough, either you or family member will be a patient. It will change how you feel um, about how you take care of patients. So, and there are so many institutional barriers. Like, for example, when I was at UCLA waiting on Pat when he was in surgery, it was on a Sunday and the place was virtually empty. There weren't people down there. There were no volunteers. And we sat there for a long time. And because I kind of knew my way around a hospital, I'd never been to UCLA before. I kind of went up to the neuro ICU and I rang the buzzer and the nurse came out. And I explained what was going on. She gave me a big hug and said, oh, you know, I'll call down to the OR and I'll find out what's going on. And then she said, well, they just got started. They're going to be five more hours. Why don't you guys go get some sleep? I'm sure you're exhausted. I'll call you when they're coming mm -hmm. out of surgery. And so those that was one of the most positive moments in his entire hospitalization, which was someone reaching out beyond themselves, connecting. And I look and I say, we should be doing that a whole lot more than we do. You know, there shouldn't be a disconnect. For example, in our neuro ICU, we have we've had situations that are very tra traumatic where someone is brain dead, but the family insists that we keep going and the doctors say, well, we're going to keep going. And then the moral distress that is uh, created in the nursing staff that has to keep going, knowing that it's fruitless. We need to do a better job of connecting the emotional part, which has been sort of shunted off to the nursing world and bring that back so that everybody's working as a team instead of a divided group. You know, I mean, I couldn't imagine keeping a brain dead patient alive other than waiting for a family member to come in from the other side of the country. Well, unfortunately, when people don't want to accept in a tragic situation, they don't want to accept it and they want you to do everything. And then you really have to say, well, we can't, you know, this is not fixable. So these are very difficult situations, but I think moral distress is real. I think when you're asked to do something mm -hmm. that you can't, um, it is, it goes against your better instincts. Um, that's not acceptable. And, and you talk about a cause for burnout. I think a cause for burnout in nursing is just that, you know, orders that they don't agree with or don't feel comfortable with and they have no recourse and they have to go ahead and do them. All right, we're um, we're tight on time right here. We could probably talk for four or five more hours on this. I don't want to finish without uh, you telling us about um, the book that you've written and where you're going with that as well as um, the writing that you're doing. I know that you've submitted and had several pieces accepted by the New York Times and so on and so forth. This is really, um, part of your mission, is it not? Right. So I'm I'm the kind of um, graying neurosurgeon, like what's my next gig or where? <laughs> how does this all go? I have uh, found this to be very inspiring. Um, it connects me with the, uh, it, it gives me a lot of satisfaction. I've had two articles published in the New York Times. 
Um, I have a third one coming out soon. I'm hoping to get a fourth one out soon. I also just had an opinion piece in the uh, World Neurosurgery saying uh, entitled Compassion Belongs in the OR. And I've written a, a feature about the doctors in Honduras. And then I've uh, written this book. Uh, current working title is uh, Grief Connects Us, Aligning Patients and Physicians. And it's because there's a lot, I really feel that we're, we need to change what we're doing and how we do it. I think that there's, there's huge, we need a revolution in the way we take care of patients and the way we take care of each other and opening our hearts and really starting to be much more intentional about all these things would make a world of difference. I think we do so many crazy things in the art of, in the name of, um, medicine, which I don't think is really in, in the best interests of patients. And I don't think that some of the decisions we make make all that much sense. I mean, in one sense, it reminds us of why we became doctors in the first place, which is the to help people. Right. It really is that simple. Mm -hmm. How do people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you're doing? I have a website and it's uh, josephsternmd.com. And um, you can access my articles. Um, should I give my email? Yeah, go for it. So I also, you can e send me email if you want, uh, joseph.stern221 at gmail.com. And I'd be delighted to um, speak with you or uh, connect. All right. I can't thank you enough. I hope you'll come back and join us again. It's been Thanks a great so pleasure. Much. All right. Bye-bye. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice, and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups, and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.